Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the people, the food, the culture, and the history of the state of Israel. Listen, if this is your first time watching, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell so you get all the brand new fresh episodes. Um, And if you'd like to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, Hey, this episode is brought to you by... The 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, If you want to learn Hebrew, they are a wonderful tool. If you want to brush up, they are priceless. Um, They are available on Amazon for Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, that's okay. Because you can get uh, the Kindle program for um, PC, Mac, Windows, uh, the Android, iPhone, all of them. And uh, you can look at it. Uh, you can check out our flashcards right on your phone or on your desktop or laptop um, or tablet. Um, all right. Uh, welcome to uh, another in our series, The 12 Cities in Israel, uh, where I go over the history in the first part and the modern city in the second part. Our last one was Haifa. Uh, which was a lot of fun. That's a city that's really close to my heart. And there is another one that we're doing uh, this episode. This sounds so fumbled. I'm sorry. And and I'm excited about doing this one because uh, we are doing, are you ready for this? Ashdod. You probably read it behind me because I write it out on the whiteboard if you're watching on YouTube. Um, but Ashdod is close to my heart because it is um, the home to the largest Moroccan Jewish uh, population in Israel. So let's get started. Um, All right. So Ashdod is the sixth largest city um, and the largest port in Israel, accounting for 60% of the country's imported goods. Um, Ashdod is located in the southern district of Israel on the Mediterranean coast with Tel Aviv 20 miles to the north and Ashkelon 12 miles to the south. Another amazing city. you got to go check out the Ashkelon episode. Um, the Ashdod of today is situated on what were two ancient twin towns, um, one inland and one on the coast. And it's really fascinating. We're going to go into that, um, which for the most, for most of their history were separate, but connected with close ties to each other. Um, the first documented settlement at a place called Ashdod, uh, it dates back to the Canaanites of the 17th century BCE. Also, Ashdod is mentioned 13 times in the Bible, 
and has been settled by the Philistines, the Israelites, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Crusaders, the Ottomans, and the British before becoming a part of the Jewish state of Israel. So we have a lot of history, a lot of fun history. I love these because Ashkelon was one of, nope, I can't tell you, got to go through it. So let's go all the way back to the Stone Age um the to the to bedrock what the flintstones um now while there is no evidence of a settlement uh dating from this era th three stone tools dating from the neolithic era back in the sounds sands of time were found and archaeologists surmise that these tools were deposited at the site during a later period so talk about borrowing someone's tools and never returning them. Wow. Borrowing tools from Neolithic man and then leaving them in Israel. <laughs> I couldn't let that one go. But that's true. What I want to know is how did they surmise that uh, these tools were left at a later date? What if the guy got lost and was attacked by like a saber-toothed tiger? Or whatever was there. And uh, then just dropped the tools. And then the saber-toothed tiger took the the cave guy back to his lair. And now you don't know what happened. It's like a crash, but the guy, there was no one at the scene of the crime. So, all right, whatever. So, yes. Um, joke covered. Joke covered. Moving on. Um, so we're going to move into the <laughs> the Bronze Age and the Canaanite era, and just south of Ashdod is a tell, and we're going to get a little scientific here, um, which is an artificial hill. A tell is an artificial hill or mound consisting of the stratified debris from the accumulated refuse of generations of people who had at one time formed a settlement and dwelt on the same site. This site was excavated and found to date all the way back to the Bronze Age. But they don't really go into what was at the tell and who occupied the tell. But they do go into the Middle Bronze Age where the earliest major inhabitation of Ashdod dates back to the 17th century BCE, which I had said before. Now, Ashdod, Ashdod, uh, was fortified in the Middle Bronze Age with a two-entryway city gate similar to the one at the site of the Canaanite city and first capital of the Kingdom of Israel, um, Shechem, to the north. So that's pretty fascinating. That means that um, I actually watched a really interesting documentary about um, the development of and ironically, the coexistence of Canaanite architectural concepts between Israelite structures and Canaanites, early Can or Canaanite structures and early Israelite structures. So I got to find that and I got to uh, maybe I'll do an episode on that after we do this series. So, all right. So towards the end of the 13th century BCE, the Philistines oh, conquered and destroyed Ashdod. And in the beginning of the 12th century BCE, the, they ruled the city and under their reign, the city prospered 
and was a member of the Philistine Pentapolis, or five cities, which included Ashkelon, Gaza on the coast, and Ekron, and Gath further inland, to include Ashdod as well. So that was, it was a major Philistine stronghold. Um, so like so many of the central eastern Mediterranean cities, Ashdod was destroyed in 950 BCE during Pharaoh Samun's conquest of the region, and the city was not rebuilt until at least 815 BCE. Now, during the Neo-Assyrian conquest of Sargon II, who reigned from 722 to 705 BCE, it's BCE, so we got to go backwards, guys, Ashdod, known as Asdudu at the time, led the revolt of Philistines, Judeans, Edomites, and Moabites against Assyria after the expulsion of Ahimiti, the king of Gath, of which Ashdod was subject to. But Sargon II's commander-in-chief regained control of Ashdod in either 712 or 711 BCE and forced the usurper Yamani to flee. Um, Sargon's general destroyed the city and exiled its residents, including some Israelites who were subsequently settled in Medea and Elam. An account of this is found in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 20. Pretty cool. What? This is so crazy. So Neo-Assyrian control of the area that held Ashdod continued under, um, this gets really like Game of Thronesy. Mitinti, the regional king at the time of Sargon II's son, Sennacherib's reign, which was from 705 to 681 BCE, and under his successor, um, Akimilki, in the reign of Semacherib's son, Esarhaddon, who reigned from 681 to 6. 69 BCE. So basically what this is saying is that um, the Assyrians under um, the Neo-Assyrians maintained control for this large span of time from 705 uh, BCE to 669 BCE. Now, at some point during this time, Ashdod was rebuilt because remember I had said that it was destroyed. An ancient Greek historian, Herodotus, wrote that um, Santik of Egypt, who reigned from 664 to 610 BCE, besieged the great city of Azotis for 29 years. The biblical references uh, to the remnant of Ashdod in Jeremiah 2520 and Zephaniah 2.4 are interpreted as allusions, allusions with an A, to this event. Now then, then, in 605 BCE, Ashdod was conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. What? Now, in 539 BCE, the city was again rebuilt, this time 
by the Persians, and in 332 BCE, it was then conquered by Alexander the Great. Now, I know I've done this in a couple of different episodes where I mentioned that the city was rebuilt, but I never mentioned that it was destroyed. Usually what would happen is when a conquering uh, army would come through, they would just raise, take slaves uh, to a place that wasn't of super importance so some of these places were very important some of these cities were important but you have to understand what we see as a city new york cleveland um Bersheva, which is not that big as a city um they're they're metropolises like compared to what existed back then so hold on i have to have a sip of coffee before we go into hellenistic ashdod and i want to dedicate this to peter and jay hats my patreon supporters thank you guys this one's for you hold on mm. all right so moving on oh before we get to that though we have to hit ashdod in the bible so it is important to note that the biblical episodes that refer to ashdod um, are at this time uncorroborated by archaeological finds but here they are in joshua 15 46 ashdod is given to the tribe of judah um, after joshua's conquest of the promised land and in Samuel 5, 6, Ashdod is mentioned as one of the principal Philistine cities. And after capturing the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, the Philistines took it to Ashdod and placed it in the Temple of Dagon. Dude, that is such a scary movie. I am so digressing um, or getting sidetracked. Um, but Dagon is this H.P. Lovecraft horror movie where these people go to this village in spain that's it, it, gotta see it it's it's awesome so anyways the ark gets taken to the temple of dagon um the very next morning the statue of dagon dagon an ancient mesopotamian and canaanite god was found prostrate in front of the ark laying there the statue was then returned to its place but on the following morning it was again found prostrate and this time broken the people of ashdod were then smitten with boils and a plague of mice was sent over the land wow um in, in 2 samuel 5 during the 10th century bce ashdod along with all of the kingdoms uh the kingdom of the philistines came under the control of king david what up um shortly after 858 uh yeah 815 bce and mentioned in two chronicles 26 king uziah of judah conquered ashdod the city is also mentioned in zechariah 9 where it speaks of the false jews now that's not very nice in the book of nehemiah 13 some fifth century bce residents of jerusalem are said to have married women from ashdod and half of the children of these unions were reportedly unable to understand Hebrew. They probably needed, they just needed like an upan or something like that. Instead, it is said that they spoke the language of Ashdod. So I'm assuming that was Greek, but I don't know. So now 
we move into the Hellenistic period. And after the Hellenization following Alexander's conquering of the lands, um, the city changed its name to the more Greek-sounding Azotus. The city prospered under both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids until the Hasmonean Revolt, you guys. Um, and during this rebellion, Judah Maccabee took it and laid it waste. So there, it was destroyed. According to Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, it changed back to Seleucid hands un until Judah's brother, Yonatan, conquered it again in 147 BCE and destroyed the biblically famous Temple of Dagon. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Ashdod remained under Hasmonean rule and is noted to have been a part of Alexander Janaeus's territory during his reign of 103 to 76 BCE. He was Hasmonean. So now we move out of the Hasmonean era and into the Roman era. So Josephus's Antiquities tells us that the Hasmonean Civil War between Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II uh, that ended in Aristobulus's reign from 66 to 63 BCE wreaked havoc on the Judean kingdom. And Ashdod was one of the cities that took part in Aristobulus's rebellion. And as a result, was witness to this violence and destruction. Um, eventually, in 63 BCE, the Roman general Pompey, boo, uh, restored the independence of Ashdod, known as Azotis at the time, as he did with all formerly Greek coastal cities. They were totally jazzed by Greek culture and everything, the Romans. So, that doesn't seem out of turn. Not out of, yeah, it seems like something they would have done. So a few years later, in 55 BCE, after more fighting, Roman general Gabinius worked to rebuild Ashdod, which had been left without protective walls. And in 30 BCE, uh, Ashdod came under the rule of King Herod, uh, who then turned it over to be ruled by his sister, Salome. Um, by the time of the first Jewish-Roman War, which occurred between 66 and 70 CE, the, the Great Jewish Revolt, it supposed that there was most likely a large enough Jewish presence in Ashdod for Emperor Vespasian to feel compelled to place a garrison of Roman soldiers within the city. Um, now, Ptolemy, the mathematician, astronomer, natural philosopher, geographer, and astrologer who lived from 90 to 168 CE, said of Ashdod that despite its location four miles from the coast, interesting, uh, that it was a maritime city, as did Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus also describes ashdod as in the inland part so that's interesting because one of the things it reminds me of is uh it reminds me of athens so athens was comprised of two parts one the city up on the hill and then there was this great gant causeway road basically that went down to athens's port which was five miles away um so it's interesting 
Now, the contradiction may refer to Ashdod's control of a separate harbor um, called Azotis Perileos, or Ashdod on the Sea. The landlocked city was called by the Roman Hippinos, or of the horsemen, um, and by the Greeks until late in the medieval period, Azotis Mesogaios, or inland Azotis. So there were these two distinct cities in the Greek and Roman era, uh, it's looking like. So now we move on to the Byzantines, and during the Byzantine period, the port city of Ashdod was overshadowed by its inland counterpart in both size and importance. And the 6th century Madaba mosaic map found in the early Byzantine church of St. George in Madaba, Jordan, shows both cities under their respective names. So they were important enough to be put on basically a state map. Because that it's the Byzantine Holy Roman Empire, uh, or was it the Holy Roman Empire at the time? No, it was the Byzantine Empire, which in itself was holy unto itself. But regardless, uh, for it to be imperial, it would also be in the church. Maybe it was the Holy Roman Empire. We're going to look into it. Moving on. Uh, the importance of Hellenized Ashdod, then Christian Ashdod, both referred to as Azotis continued until the 7th century when it then came under Muslim rule. I know I'm shifting quickly, but not much happened in Ashdod between then. The city during Byzantine times was represented at the Council of Chalcedon by Heraclius of Azotus. So that does mean the Holy, uh, the, the Holy Byzantine Empire. So they were the ones, Constantinople, Constantine, all of that brought in Catholicism. And yeah, so if it was in the church, it was on a map and it was the church and the state were the same. So it was boom, big. <sighs> Glad we solved that all in one episode. So in November of 2017, Israeli archaeologists from Tel Aviv University discovered a 1,500-year-old Greek dedication to a church or possibly a monastery. Uh, this inscription was discovered between two modern houses about a mile from the coast, and according to a medieval Christian Georgian calendar, a four-line Greek mosaic inscription dated back to the third indiction year 292 which corresponds to the 6th century ad on the gregorian calendar you like how i said that like i knew how to calculate that um it is thought that these archaeologists might have found the remains of the roman byzantine city of ashdod yam whoa so Remember how I said all of these references in the Bible were to an Ashdod that wasn't archaeologically substantiated? <gasps> what? So now we're going to move out of the Byzantine period into the early Muslim period. And during the early Muslim period, or the period between uh, the start of the Muslim conquests up until the Crusades, um, a coastal fort was erected by the Umayyad Caliph Abid al-Malik, the builder of the Dome of the Rock, at or near the former sea site of Azotis Paralios, which was later reconstructed by reconstructed by the Fatimids and the Crusaders. 
A probable reference to Ashdod during this period was made by the Muslim geographer Ibn Bey, who lived from 820 to 912. He referred to the inland city as Azdud and described it as a postal station between Al-Ramla and Gaza. Uh, present day, I'm assuming Ramla, Ramle, um, and Gaza city. So hold on, I'm going to take another sip of coffee. Hold on just one sec. I find it fascinating, though, that these places are, I mean, the stones that you walk on when you're there are the stones that these geographers or Herodotus or, you know, Ptolemy or all these people, you know, were just like kicking it on, eating grapes and going, huh, what are, that, oh, that's great. You know, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Hold on. All right, moving on to the Crusades. Now, during the Crusader period, documents have been found indicating that Ashdod belonged to the lordship of Ramla. Uh, it is surmised by historians that in 1169, the old Arab sea fort was given by Hugh, lord of Ramla, to the knight Nicholas de Beroard. From this period on, the fort was known as Castellum uh, Beroart. Um, what's interesting is they say archaeologists uh, surmise or assume, and I don't. Um, they don't really go into it, so I don't know what what they make these academic reasonings based on. I wish I could give it to you. I'm sorry. Um, so later on, after that, during the uh, Ayyubid and the Mamluk periods, um, the port stops being mentioned during these times. And this is most likely due to it being destroyed along with other port cities by the Muslims during this period. Now that makes sense because we know that Ashdod was raised. We know that um, Akko was raised. We know that um, the port in Haifa was raised after the Crusades by the Mamluks. So that's an easy surmise. I don't know why they can't put something like that into the other data. So, um, and this was due to fears the Crusader, the Crusaders using, would use them as staging areas for invasion. Um, because of this destruction of the port city of Ashdod, the in because of this destruction of the port city of Ashdod, the inland Ashdod elevated in regional importance. So after this, there pretty much was no more port of Ashdod. It was only the inland Ashdod. Now, during uh, this importance of the inland Ashdod is reflected during Ottoman rule by its inclusion on uh, their outline of the ancient trade route uh, via Maris. And in 1596 CE, um, Ashdod was administered, uh, administrated by under the district of Gaza and the sub-district of Gaza. So the, you have the region of Gaza and then the city of Gaza. At this time, the population of Ashdod, Ashdod called uh, Sdud by the Ottomans, numbered 75 households with approximately 413 persons who were all Muslims, it is said. Uh, the villagers of Sdud uh, paid a fixed 
tax rate of about 33% on wheat, barley, sesame, and fruit crops, as well as goats and beehives, um, which was a total of 14,000 octay, which is the Turkish Ottoman currency. And I don't know what it uh, is in real dollars. So uh, in in current U.S. dollars, real dollars. Um, Are they real? Are they? Um, So in 1838, uh, travelogue biblical researches in Palestine by the American biblical scholar Edward Robinson. um, He wrote uh, Ashdod written as dude. Uh, was noted as a Muslim village in the Ottoman Empire's Gaza district. Now, in Palestine, explore, the Palestine Exploration Funds, the survey of Western Palestine by British lieutenants Condor and Kitchener, Ashdod, known as Isdud this time, was described as a village spread across the eastern slope of a low hill and that it was covered with gardens. Southwest of the village stands a ruined khan, according to um, according to the book, or roadside inn where travelers known as caravanners uh, could rest and recover from their day's journey. So it was a stop for caravans, trade caravans. Um, the houses at this site were one story high with walls and enclosures built out of adobe brick, there were two main sources of water, which were a pond and a masonry well. Both of these were surrounded by groves of date palms and fig trees. So for the Ottomans, they maintained it basically as a as a stop on their trade routes throughout their empire. So with the defeat of the Ottomans uh, after World War I, the village of Isdud came under the governance of the British under the mandate for Palestine um, in a census of mandatory Palestine conducted by the authorities in 1922, Isdud had a population of 2,566 inhabitants with 2,555 Muslims and 11 Christians. These Christians were all identified as Catholics. Now, by 1931, the population increased to 3,240 with 3,238 Muslims and two Christians, um, all living within a total of 764 houses. That's actually a significant number of dwellings um, for what's called a village. So also during the British mandatory uh, period, also during the British mandatory period, um, the village of Estud was home to two elementary schools, one for uh, was exclusively for boys, which was opened in 1922, and another one for girls, which was started in 1942. Took 20 years to get a girls' school. Um, by the mid 1940s, the all boys school in the village had 371 students, while the all girls school had 74. Well, at least 74 women girls were being educated. We have to say that, right? Um, a joint survey work prepared by the British Mandate on Palestine Village Statistics um, that was dated April 1st, 1945, had Istud with a population of 4,620 Arabs and 290 Jews. So Jews had started arriving to Istud. 
which would become, again, Ashdod. The total area of land for the town was 11,800 acres of land. So it's pretty big, um, with almost 5,900 acres for cereals or, you know, wheat, barley, and all that. A little over 2,000 acres for plantations and uh, irrigable land and approximately 800 acres used for citrus and bananas. Um, Land uh, that had buildings on it only took up 32 acres. And that is um, the history of Ashdod up until uh, the establishment of the state. And yeah, so... Uh, fun. We covered everything. We went all over the place and we saw a lot of similarities in the history to a number of other cities, um, in our 12 cities, the 12 cities in Israel. So, um, all right, that's it. Hey, um, if you like this video, hit the like button and the subscribe button and the notification bell. Um, if you want to take us with you, when you go for a run, go to the gym, go for a drive in your car, uh, don't forget to uh, download us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. And as I said, this episode was brought to you by the 12 cities in Israel, modern Hebrew flashcards, which you can get on Amazon for Kindle. And if you don't have a Kindle, that's okay. You can download the Kindle app from Amazon for Mac uh, Windows, Android, and uh, iPhone, and um, what is it? The iPad. And uh, sorry. Um, it, so yeah, we have all these. It's the best way to learn Hebrew. Um, it's the best way to brush up on Hebrew. Uh, we have what do we have? We have the alphabet in print and script. We have numbers in Hebrew, and we have body and clothing in Hebrew. Uh, this week, I think I'm going to start working on the next one, which is the house. And then after that, we're going to have food. Um, and also, don't forget to check out uh, my children's book, Who is a Jew? Uh, illustrated by the illustrious, illustrated by the illustrious Dana Korokova. Who is a uh, an, uh, children's book illustrator? Um, she's an artist from Tel Aviv, and she is amazing. So check it out. Um, all right, that's it. Todorba, leitrotve, yalla bye.
ציפור נודדת, מחפשת מולדת. על ענף עץ בטוח, התיישבתי Thank <laughs> you.